Good afternoon, Nampal. Good afternoon, Ajahn Asoko. So it's been some time since we took the time to have a Q&A. So thank you for this. Today is Tuesday, 14th of December, 2021. And I'd like to uh, just read you a short quote from the Majima Nikaya, Sutta 29. Uh, I'd like to hear your considerations on this. It goes like this. The purpose of the holy life does not consist in acquiring alms, honor, or fame, nor in gaining morality, concentration, or the eye of knowledge. That unshakable deliverance of the heart, that indeed is the object of the holy life, that is its essence, that is its goal. Well, that's one of, one of the quotes from the scriptures that I really have treasured my whole monastic life, even as a Samanera. I read that in the Jnanati Loka's Word of the Buddha. And it, it seems so perfectly explained, you know, the aim of the holy life. And that's important reflection for all of us who are living what we call the holy life as samanas, as monks, as nuns, in order to put things into perspective, the kind of experiences that we have as individuals and as a, as a group, as sangha members, as monks or as nuns, and how these worldly conditions can overwhelm us in our minds and with our ideals, with our our own views about the holy life and what's right and what's wrong, where that particular quote explains the aim of the holy life is this unshakable, this unshakableness of the heart, which is a metaphor for enlightenment, where you begin to realize for yourself the unshakable reality of Dhamma yourself, you're no longer just using a quote or believing that it's possible, but actually realizing it. And uh, I've used that a lot during my many years as a, as a bhikkhu, because you go through so many experiences where, that are very shakable. You know, as a training monk, as a Majima monk, as a senior monk, as a as a abbot of monastery, as a upachaya preceptor, or to ordain monks, nuns, and to uh, carry on, you know, in in a tradition that's formulated for you, very uh, precise rules about behavior and precepts, and uh, and all the doubts that arise in regards to your own interpretations of Dhamma, of Vinaya, and, and your, your kind of reactions to others' views and opinions, these are all shakeable, flappable, they flap in your mind. And they can be very different, you know, because, you know, we don't always agree on the shakeable conditions that we're experiencing through the senses. But, and so, because we don't agree, we can make these the 
are kind of what we cling to, what we stubbornly hold to and fight over and judge each other by these conditions that we are very attached to, our sense of righteousness or our interpretations of scriptures or our tradition, uh, my view, my my opinion, uh, you know, become my standard for operating in the world. And that world is shakeable. It shakes all the time. And we, you know, this time in history of humanity, the, the ob obviousness of shakeability is, is apparent in just the mass media. And uh, this sense of finding a perfect society, a perfect monastery, a perfect teacher, a perfect system, perfect political system, perfect religious system. You know, these are ideals made out of the human brain. You know, they're not ultimately real. Like, they're not, they, they, they're imagined. They're imaginations of perfection. What we think, taking our thinking process to its top, point to its uh, summit and then we operate and compare life with that, we're always going to be disgruntled or disappointed or complaining because the, the worldly life is a very shakeable conditioning and our cultural conditioning is very shakeable and our own personality is easily shaken by praise and blame by success and failure. And, uh, you know, and the Buddha, in his teachings, pointed this out, how, you know, the suffering, the first noble truth, is, is about this clinging to conditions that are unsatisfying. And when you reason it out, if you cling to what is unsatisfactory, you know, and you don't realize you're clinging to it, <clears throat> then you're, you're always going to be suffering because there's always something you don't agree with or don't like or don't approve of about either yourself or the people you live with or the world or the, the country you're living in. There's so many things we can, we can feel righteous indignation over and so many injustices and so many abuses of laws and criminality and and uh, scams and delusions that are promoted through media you know it's endless the endless parade of of shakeable conditions and so the buddha's you know in his teaching was pointing out you don't try to get rid of the shakeable conditions it's not about trying to sort it out and find conditions that don't shake but realizing that all conditions are impermanent, that's their nature, to change, to change. Something can't be permanently good or perfect or beautiful or true. You know, these are super, these are adjectives about the best, the superlatives, but they, you know, they are limited because their, their words themselves are conditions. They're shakeable. And uh, 
And so what is it that realizes shakeability? And of course, that's what awareness is. Conscious awareness is aware of the shakeability of our thoughts, of one's physical body, of one's emotional habits, of one's viewpoints and opinions, conceptions, and so forth. We, we, we are encouraged to investigate and to, to uh, really understand how unsatisfying the world is because it is always changing and it's not always changing the way we want it to. So what is the unshakeability is this awareness, this mindfulness, that doesn't shake. That can, that can be, you know, in the midst of a battlefield or a storm or a typhoon. One can, awareness doesn't shake. Your emotions shake all over the place. In, imagine in a battlefield or in, in most situations. And uh, just this present time with the COVID pandemic and the Omicron variant that is promoted by the media, you know, so, you know, this is a very worrisome condition that we hear about and we take precautions. We have wear masks and vaccinations as a way to try to control it or prevent it from getting the disease. And so, you know, emotionally we, we feel, what do you actually feel about the pandemic? You know, and, and we, we all want it to end. We want to find a, a solution. And so there's no more pandemic, COVID pandemic would be what everybody wants. Nobody wants a COVID pandemic. But um, COVID pandemics aren't about what we desire, but it's the way nature changes. So it's part of the natural changingness of phenomena. And phenomena is, its nature is shakeable or changing or unsatisfactory. And it's not so. So the whole illusion of a separate self that we, you know, the ego or the sakyaditi, the Pali term for the ego, is very shakeable, impermanent, unsatisfying. And, you know, how do you perfect your ego so you have a perfect ego? You know, and, you know, and all the attempts in modern psychology and science and all kinds of gurus and ajans, teachers trying to tell us how to have perfect egos. But egos are conditioned phenomena. They can't be perfect. You can't have a perfect ego because it's a prevarication. It's a, it's an artifice that we've acquired through life. But what doesn't shake is what is aware of the ego. And that's awareness, mindfulness, conscious awareness, Dhamma, it's the, the Dhamma that doesn't shake. So our refuge in Dhamma is in the unshakeability, the unshakable Dhamma, not the Dhammas that arise and cease and 
change according to conditions we have no control over. So I encourage anyone who's listening to this uh, talk, you know, take this seriously. The, uh, the unshakable heart is the whole, is the aim of the holy life. So that the holy life is truly holy. It's not just trying to make worldly conditions better, but it's learning to, to recognize things as they are and to realize what you're not. You're not anything that shakes. You're not a shaking condition. So can you claim unshakability as a person? No, you can't. Because personality, any thoughts about yourself as a separate person is shakes and is not to be trusted. But when we take refuge in Dhamma, that's what actually it means in Dhamma that doesn't shake. We begin to realize that, know that, because it's here and now, it's not something remote and far off and, and refined and, and special. It's so ordinary, so real, so true, so perfect that we don't notice it because of our distracting habits with all the shakeable, flappable conditions that we think and feel through our bodies through our senses. So in order to uh, take refuge in that unshakability, you need to learn to recognize the conditions that are unstable and also recognize that awareness we're talking about and learn to step back from one back into the other. Is that correct? Yeah, it's it's very simple, really. Like Bhattacharya's, his method was this Puto mantra, which is like the witness position. Like Puto is a mantra type form of Buddha. So it's, you know, it's using the Buddha's name and not as some kind of worshiping a an ancient sage of the past, but as the reality of witnessing Dhamma here and now, because it's Buddha in the traditional Pali explanations, it's Buddha that knows Dhamma. So in Bhutto, you know, you're, you're, you're not egotistically attaching to it. It's merely a skillful means, an expedient means to remind you uh, that, that's your refuge, is in awareness, witnessing. So we, we can witness the way things are. And so in Vipassana meditation, the four foundations of mindfulness is all about witnessing uh, the body, the feelings, the, the emotions, and dhammas that arise and things. And see them, you know, not in terms of like personal liking or disliking or trying to control them, but just this simple relaxed awareness of the way things are 
is letting like the the clouds in the sky flow by without making a, an emotional problem about black clouds when you don't want them, you know, or you, you just want pure blue sky all the time. But in terms of the sensory world that we're experiencing through the, these bodies, you know, we have to deal with happiness and suffering, praise and blame, success and failure, good health, bad health, old age, sickness and death. You know, this is, these are the obvious facts that are flappable and changeable. And so the Buddha is making that very apparent, you know, to be the witness of it. And, you know, I used to ask myself, what doesn't change? What Can awareness be impermanent? Can it, you know, is this conscious awareness, this mindfulness? That of the puto, of the knowing, is that a condition? Can a condition see itself? Can one condition know another condition? Uh, if I depend on one condition, I attach to a condition, then I view everything from whether I like or don't like, approve or disapprove, which is just the increasing the sakyadity, the ego, separate self view, because as a person you form preferences and you form opinions and views. It's part of cultural conditioning, religious conditioning. It's all conditioning, it's all flappable stuff, you know, that, that, that we align ourselves with. And no wonder uh, the Buddha pointed to the in his first sermon, The Noble Truth of Suffering, because it's so obvious. And yet, how many people, you know, we blame our suffering on other conditions. You know, if all the conditions were perfect, then we wouldn't suffer. We have this view, you know, as a separate individual personality that if I had the perfect parents, the perfect education, the perfect relationship, living in the perfect society, going to the perfect schools and getting the perfect degrees, having lots of money, that that I'd be really happy, perfectly happy. You know, that's the illusion, that's the fairy tale of life that we that has been conditioned into us. It's not the way things are. It's not life as it really is. So the Buddha is pointing to the fact that no matter what the conditions might be, good or bad, right or wrong, success or failure, good health or bad health, our true refuge is in awareness of them as a nature, as impermanent, unsatisfying, and not, not a personal self. So there's, there's no personal self because the personal self is the ego, uh, the, the, the strong identity we have with our physical body, our belief that consciousness is inside our brain or inside the body, and, and that we're very, this limited personality, and, you know, so because in terms of form, we are, we're all very limited in form. 
and our senses, you know, how accurate can our senses, you know, respond to reality, you know, so we can create, you know, we have imagination, we can imagine all kinds of things, there's all kinds of fake news and dramas going on, you know, and, and, and uh, theories, conspiracy theories that people imagine, you can imagine anything that uh, you you want to believe in, you know, but that's not awareness, that's not wisdom, that's not awareness, that's just habit patterns that you've developed and you take sides and you believe in, in uh, concepts as reality or you believe in your own opinions as being right or you believe other other people's opinions are wrong, you know, so it's in terms of belief, it's about believing or disbelieving, it's about the thinking process, about the changing conditions. So, you, you know, to believe in something isn't, you know, is, is conditioning to us, to believe in the, in democracy or in Buddhism or in you know, Dhamma, belief in Dhamma, but this, when we take refuge in Dhamma, we're not just believing in it, because what is the Dhamma, you know, for, for those of us who are culturally conditioned by Buddhism, who come to Buddhism when we're adults, you know, we take refuge in Dhamma, and what, and what is the Dhamma, you know, what are we taking refuge in? And we say, to be a Buddhist, you have to take refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And, and we go through the ceremonies, take the three refuges, which are a part of ceremonial forms, of, of our, especially of our tradition. And, uh, but then we, you know, through investigation, what is the Dhamma? And, and in translations, in English translations of Dhamma, parent here and now. So, you know, and then, you know, that's a very worthy reflection. And to ask yourself, what is the parent here and now? And of course, what you see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, feel, it all changing. You can experience through the senses, uh, sunny days or rainy days or feeling he uh, healthy and vigorous or sickly and weak. And, and you know, these are uh, feelings and conditions that arise and cease according to other conditions. But all the time, whatever state the conditions might be that you're experiencing, what is apparent is that you're aware of them, they're like this. And so it's as simple as that, this awareness, awaken attention to the way it is. And then the, the re constant refrain of all conditions are impermanent, all Dhamma is not self. You can't find your, your sense of separateness and specialness uh, as an ego, as a person, as a physical form. You know, it's always subject to, no matter what you decide you are as a person, as a personality, that can easily change according to whether 
you're successful or failing or people love you or people hate you, you know, the whole uh, sense of self flaps about, uh, shakes and causes us endless fears, worries and problems about, you know, what's going to happen to me in the future. And what, what doesn't shake during all this, these shaking conditions is awareness. So it's learning to abide, to really take refuge, to rest, to abide. It's a place of rest, of being the witness to the changing conditions rather than be a victim of the changing conditions. If I, may, if I may ask a question with a bit of more of a personal touch to it. Um, when we're talking, you often mention how much you enjoy just spending time in your room, resting in emptiness. And that's what you're talking about, isn't it? It is this, this refuge, this unshakable side of awareness. Yes, it's... And what I call real bhavana or meditation. Yeah. And it's not a technique, you know, that I've learned from. But just awakening and, uh, you know, apparent here and now, Dhamma, apparent here and now and timeless. I use these references a lot, timelessness. Because every thought is a time-bound condition. Every emotion is a time-bound condition. All your senses are all time-bound conditions. Your body, you know, is all about time. Time is the world that, that we see, that we hear, smell, taste, touch, that we think. These are the conditions but the unconditioned is silent. So it's here and now, timeless. And so in, in just reminding yourself that you begin to, you, you have this sense of letting go, of relaxing. And letting go, then you begin to, to notice silence. Silence aware of itself. There's awareness. There's knowing. There's no knower. There's no object to know, but there's knowing. Or one of my favorite reflections nowadays is uh, the unknowingness. Because knowing doesn't know anything. And, you know, it's not like it's, it's taking sides with anything. It's just aware it's like this. So in, uh, you know, in this Lumpa Chow and emphasize or Tanja Kun Pudetat and so on. Oh, he used to use that. Da da da, the Pali word for Benyang Niang or it's like this. That's knowing, but it's impersonal. It's not me. 
out of tomato knowing something, knowing silence. In the silence, there's no Ajahn Sumedho anymore. Ajahn Sumedho has to manifest and disappear. This is just a convention. It's not a reality. So your name, your position, your everything that that is personal and separative arises and ceases. And you're aware of it, presence and absence. You know, usually, you know, out of just the ego, the ego tends to want to get rid of the unpleasant and hold on to the pleasant. So we're caught in this endless struggle of trying to make life, to be happy, to be successful, to be appreciated, to be loved, to be acknowledged. And and we really resist the, you know, there's a tremendous fear of being a failure, of being nobody, of being rejected by society, of, of being despised, of being accused of things, of, of you know, there's, there's, the ego is is based on this kind of structure of success and failure, praise and blame. And, but this awareness, silence, doesn't have any praise and blame or success or failure. In the silence, there's awareness of it. And suddenly the fear of the future arises, there's awareness. It's like this. It's not judging. It's not saying that's fear of the future. It's not labeling it or approving or disapproving. It's just witnessing its presence and its absence. So, you know, when the ego just knows the presence because you identify with the condition. And then, you know, we aren't aware of the absence. Because the, the thinking mind is, you know, proliferates. It goes on and on and on. So as long as you're attached to the intellectual capacities of your brain, you know, you're going to just go on and on and on with with uh, ideas, with concepts, with beliefs, with systems. And because that's the way the thinking mind operates. It's grammatical, it's conditioned in you, like English grammar. You learn that at a young age and how to combine a noun and a verb and so forth. And it's all conditioning, you know. So, you know, when we're when we're trying to figure out the world and who we are as a person, as a separate member of society, as a bhikkhu or a siladhara or something, you know, our personal identities or our social identities, you know, we end up with just empty phenomena, but we can take it all very seriously they make endless problems and make everybody miserable over, you know, that you don't really appreciate me like you should. <laughs> and you should be grateful. You know, when you, we talk a lot about gratitude. Uh, and, you know, it's good teaching. We should, we should be grateful. But... You know, when we grasp the idea, the teaching itself, we can be a tyrants about gratitude. 
like parents saying, you should be grateful to me because I took care of you from your birth. You know, and it's true, should be grateful, but then that's not wisdom, that's not witnessing. You're just taking a position and making judgments about somebody else about how they should be without knowing what you're doing. You're caught up in, in righteous views, which are right, but right is also a condition. So getting beyond right and wrong, good and bad, is the unflappable, unshakable heart of Dhamma. That is the whole point of the holy life. And that, you know, keep that as a constant reminder. What, what, you know, for the Sangha here in Amravati, that is your, your goal, your, your emphasis rather than trying to, you know, wanting to become Ajahns or senior monks or senior nuns or bhikkhunis or, or trying to get prestigious titles or, you know, to, to acquire degrees in Vipassana and, and Abhidhamma and all that. That's not the aim of the holy life. You know, that's the ego operating and wanting to, to get something better than what you, you have, you assume you have right now. But if you, really take refuge in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. It's not about becoming anything. It's about letting go of everything. But we have these egos. So, you know, it's not to say we get rid of the ego, but we begin to see that clinging to it is the cause of suffering. You know, so in, in, um, you don't get rid of your ego through awareness. You don't, you know, change your ego in any noticeable way, but you become aware of it as a condition rather than as a personal identity. And that's liberation. So in, in enlightened awareness, you know, you still function as a member of society, as a monk or a nun, as a citizen as, uh, of the country you're living in, and, and as a, you know, you still operate in the, in, with the conventions, in, in, in using the personal conventions that, that we have to use in the world. But the difference between an enlightened being and an unaligned one, and then unaligned one believes the, that they're the ego, that they're somebody special, or they're somebody insignificant, or they're nobody, and they believe that and operate from from these these kind of positions, which are shakable. So silence the background of everything, the substratum. Behind all the noise of your thoughts and the power of your emotional habits is the silence that they manifest in 
disappeared. And it's awakening to this silence, because it's, it's here and now, it's not something created or dependent upon conditions being silent. It's not, not something that you create, although you can trust it either. But it's the, it's the goal of the holy life. So in the long run, you, you, you know, like anatta, no self, you know, through investigating Sakya Ditti, Sila Bhatta Bharamata, these are the first three fetters, the, the obstructions to seeing the path of liberation, is this 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 condition these humanly conditioned habits of a separate self view identifying with the physical body that that you have and learning to think and being conditioned by your culture by your social position by your family by your tribe you know, by everything around us, when we aren't aware of it, we become conditioned by it. And it's all about pleasure and pain and beauty and ugliness and right and wrong, you know, you know, in the changing, flappable, conditioned realm, everything is, is subject to change. Like old age is the result of birth. You know, so something is Obvious as that, you know, if you're never born, you never grow old, but, you know, once you're born, a newborn infant, all it can do is get old. And that's, that's just nature of the conditioned realm, which we're conditioned to identify with in a personal way. So, and the thinking process is conditioned, you know, so, you know, my native tongue is English and um, American English, and it's. <laughs> I learned to, to speak it when I was growing up, you know, it's just part of my natural conditioning heritage. And I learned to speak it like this. And, uh, and then I was educated in the English language. And uh, so it's. It's, you know, I think in English, I express my pleasure or pain in English terms. And what is that? What's English? You know, is it ultimate Dhamma? Is it ultimate reality? Or it's just another language that people learn after they're born, with they're born in their English-speaking family. This is, this is what you pick up. And yet you can... You know, you develop a critical mind, and you have a, a high IQ, you have well, a good education, you think a lot. And, you know, you, as you think a lot, you can become more reasonable, the more kind of rational you become, the more reasonable, sensible you are. But so much of the people are not reasonable and sensible. They think with fear and, and prejudices and 
all kinds of biases, not through reason and logic and, and understanding of things. So we're free thinkers, you know, we're free to think anything we want. <laughs> and, and take that as a definition of yourself. I can think anything I want, which is a kind of truism. <laughs> you know, because I can do that, I can think anything. And, uh, for, you know, and, and, you know, being educated, you learn to think you had a reasonably and uh, but even that is a limitation because then you expect everybody to be reasonable when they're not and you get frustrated and annoyed <laughs> with with politicians and preachers and religious gurus and <laughs> you yeah. You know, just through the conditioning of whatever language you is your native tongue, it's an acquired conditioning. You're not born speaking Thai. You're not born speaking English or French or Chinese. You learn that. And if a, if a Chinese is born into an English speaking family, he speaks English <laughs> because he's conditioned to do that. That's just the way it is. But what is beyond language? What is aware of thought is conscious awareness. You're aware of what you're thinking is like this, not judging it because thinking is about judging. So you think uh, a bad thought, you feel angry and and annoyed at somebody, and then you think, I should, I'm a bhikkhu for so many years, I should have, I shouldn't be angry and annoyed. Then you're thinking ideally about what an ideal bhikkhu should be like, and you're caught in the feeling guilty and trying to pretend you're not annoyed, or you've conquered it. <laughs> Or there's something, it's a, a, a message that you've got to come learn how to deal with your annoyance habits. And you create a sense of that you are somebody that always has to make things right or become perfect or criticize or make value judgments about yourself or others. It's an endless cycle, hopeless, you know, hopeless kind of tedious life that we live. And no wonder people are are, uh, you know, seeking distractions from it. You know, like the, the modern technology is, is a credible distraction from the reality of here and now. Because, <laughs> you know, you've got iPads and you just have little apps on the screen and you just touch them and you can get a, you know, the news or read a book or read something on it or see videos or get the weather report or, you know, all kinds of, of um, possibilities for distraction. So we don't, you know, modern life is, is stressful because of that, because we're always distracting ourselves with, with meaningless empty objects and we don't know what we're doing.
you know, we're not intentionally doing it, we're just initially doing it. So, this awareness of that is not that we don't do that, but we become aware. And so when you can, you know, when you begin to appreciate and recognize silence as your refuge, that's a relief from all that distraction, all that stuff that that you acquire through internet, through mass media, through the society you're living in, through the friends you have around you. You know, silence is is universal, it's not personal. It's not something you can, you know, you can't identify with it. As soon as you identify with silence, you're thinking again. So, you know, I just, over the years in, in recognizing this, I filled notebooks. I've showed you, I took notebooks with nothing but silence written on one word after another, learning to, to, to use my ability to write silence to remind me, filling out whole pages of notebooks with just the word silence. <laughs> Just to remind myself, because the the habits, uh, my my thinking habits were so powerful that I, you know, I couldn't, you know, I had to constantly kind of remind myself using just the English word silence. Or sometimes I use the Italian silencio because it's more kind of rhythmic. But whatever it's Italian or English, it's still a, an artificial condition that you eventually let go of because you know silence. Silence is reality here and now. It's not. It's not a word. But in in learning, when you take your refuge in Dhamma, it's silent. It doesn't have a language. It's not Pali. It's not Sanskrit. It's not Tibetan or Chinese. Those are conditions that arise in the silence. And silence is peaceful, beautiful, perfect. So it's not like dead silence and kind of like you imagine it might be. Because sometimes silence is imagined to be, you know, boring or dead or... And so we use words like emptiness and it sounds barren and meaningless. So word emptiness is just another word or silence. And then you find it out for yourself. Once you begin to, to realize and treasure silence, you know, it's a relaxed all the world ceases in the silence. So you, you know, and so like in monastic life, you can get very upset when you go to meetings and people say things you don't agree with and you can personally be offended by various things that happen and, and uh, but then the silence, 
it drops away. You know, you're not suppressing that. You're not suppressing emotion, but being annoyed disappears in silence. And so you just let it disappear rather than try to get rid of it. And so you be just through your own experiments, your own investigation, you begin to realize this for yourself. To be realized individually through wisdom is Dhamma. Thank you very much for these reflections on both.